Hello, I'm Anthony Sana. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, episode 50, Understanding Jordan Peterson and Becoming an Authentic Member of Society. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio. Thanks for tuning in today and welcome back if you're a longtime listener and viewer uh, of our fine video production here. Uh, I'm Anthony Santa in studio today once again with Dr. Michael Smith. That guy over there on the other microphone. Uh, Michael, good to see you here today. You too. I understand you were a bit uh, under the weather to say the least over the past week or so. Uh, I had a little incident. I got to spend some time in Emerge and it turned out not to be what we thought, but I get to sound a bit like a blues singer. Beautiful. Your, your voice will be as deep and as sexy as mine is today. Man. How's Aww. that? Trying to keep up, man. <laughs> uh, Fusion Health Radio, it's all about me. Yeah. No, seriously. It's all about what that guy over there has to say about health and diet and nutrition and lifestyle and mindset. Um, last episode, if you didn't get a chance to tune in, was really impactful. So impactful that when I listened back, um, it knocked me on my keister uh, when I uh, was listening to the ideas uh, that were shared, uh, things about uh, raising healthy kids. Uh, Michael, do you want to sort of give people a, a little bit of a taste of what we talked about? So uh, I guess returning from my little hospital misadventure, I have a, a relatively ebullient or buoyant or goofy sense of humor right now. So I, I'm aware that how we communicate now has to be more careful. And that's kind of why we're talking about what we're talking about today. But the uh, the joke where I grew up when I was a kid, and pretend this is like an anthropological reference, so we don't have to take this too personally, but the old saying is, you know, when you're going to raise kids, you put them in a barrel and feed them through the hole, and if they, you know, turn out to be not too much trouble, you let them out. So I'm just making a joke. So we didn't do that. We didn't talk about that way raising kids at all. But I just wanted to bring up one of these old 1950s jokes. Oh my God, have you heard that Fusion House radio podcast? Know, Those guys are cruel. Child abuse. <laughs> Uh, what we actually got into, though, I think fundamentally was just looking at the concept of qing uh, in Chinese medicine and how that is something you can assess on a felt sense as yourself, and you can kind of assess that with your kids. And maybe you, you and your partner might want to assess that uh, even medically um, with some lab work before you consider getting pregnant. So we basically walked through... Uh, the nature and the essence of Jing and being really healthy and, you know, modifying all the insults that we do uh, throughout life around food and diet and supplements, exercise. And we did take two little kind of unexpectedly important, I think, um, segues and deep dives into what uh, a clinician with my background sees being the potential harm or the potential uh, social kind of hurdle that's being developed by the amount of time uh, everyone's spending on screens, but more importantly, how uh, family dynamics who are more screen allowing, screen dependent, screen addicted, and then bringing up kids in that environment. Uh, the fundamental thesis is that there's a, a part of the back of the human brain that actually learns to speak uh, in the linguist, linguistic sense of language, body language and stuff like that. But uh, two things we didn't bring up in this context, and I'm not going to go too deep in this, but I really want people who hear that episode to hear this because this is the why, and I don't think we spoke to it clearly enough. Hmm. And I don't remember that structure of the brain, but just imagine you're a kid and you're learning words, and you know when you're born, you can make every uh, linguistic phenome in the entire world. Like you could potentially learn to speak any language from sound and rote, right? So your mind is like this completely open sponge as a kid. And then as you learn language, your actual ability to make sounds pairs down to the language around you. Right. 
what's interesting about that part of the brain is about 60 to 62 percent i think uh, of what's going on in your general day-to-day conversation between two people in the same room over 60 percent of the actual measurable communication and meaning is through body language facial expression and tone of voice and and this is where it gets weirder um, and the pe- this, this, this is a, a, a really interesting opportunity if you're a person who's determined to really find who you are. And, and please give me a minute because I, I have to unpack this because the first thing I'm going to say is it's usually going to really irritate people, especially people who think they're really independent. So here's the number. When you look at what most people do with respect to intonation, facial expression, what you do with your eyebrows, how you kind of move your chest and breast and bum around to be more or less interesting to your preferred mate, 91% of your behavior is mimicked. Mimicked as in you're mimicking the person you're talking to? You want to be cute? Who do you think is cute? And how did they turn and look, you know, back at the, the person at the, the dinner party? You know, so we're, we're always acting out what seems a successful somatic uh, interaction with the world from tone of voice to the way we kind of, again, you know, I'm, I'm the last person to try and demonstrate flirting, just FYI. But, you know, the things people do is, hey, kind of face stuff and... Uh, I never caught that class. <laughs> you were away that day. <laughs> yeah, I was away that day. while. But imagine, here's a part of your brain that's fundamental throughout all of human evolution. And its uh, job is to build up with neural pathways that help you understand, connect to, relate to, hear, um, and or maybe uh, marginalize dangerous people and or find deeper ways to communicate with those you have to adapt to or negotiate with. And if you spend all of your time around people on screens, on screens, especially small ones close to your head, the downside is for everyone is that part of our brain is underdeveloped and we have a harder time with social interaction. And it's what I would call clinically, uh, um, basically a social adaptive overwhelm. Your, your mind can't handle the, the, the amount of um, information that's coming because you haven't had enough time actually dealing with multiple faces. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, all, this, this is going to come back near the end, so I'll start it now. This is going to be a really tricky show, by the way, because there's, there's lots of layers, and I know to make this work, I have to do it in these layers. So what's fundamental about this thing is that in order for you to move ahead in the world, uh, in the sense of dating, uh, functioning within your family, your workplace, but even perhaps more importantly, especially now, being able to effectively communicate and collaborate with other people in the world around social memes and dynamics and stuff like that, uh, things that are important, <clears throat> we're just seeing a lot and uh, a lot more difficulty in in the the way we communicate, and you know what you can and can't say around being perhaps a bit short tempered or you know rough with your words, and which is why I kind of made the teasing statement I did a couple of minutes ago is the phenomena that's happening with our sudden kind of uh, sense of being on thin ice with what we can say or what other people say and what that means to us. I personally think is fundamentally um, resting in the underdevelopment of that part of the linguistic brain that um, has, has, is so easy to hit overload that, you know, dealing with your annoying racist uncle who happens to not care whether or not you think the world's, you know, ever going to be a better place. I mean, that interaction with that person isn't just, oh, there's Jerry, he's a twit. It's more like, oh my God, that person's fundamentally making me uh, instinctually driven within my entire body, like butterflies in my stomach, muscle reactions, entire deep instinctual reactions to something. And that's new. It's new that we're, we're having this, you know, profound communication divide. And I think there's a, an opportunity, you know, with respect to screens to balance out the timing, I'm not saying they're bad. We're going to be using them forever. We're going to be probably going into outer space and talking to ships through them at some point. You know, I have no idea, but 
until we balance that out, you know, with other practices, or maybe there's some screen game that'll reintroduce you to the way facial microexpressions work so that we can kind of regain that part of our instinctual self. But I mean, I'm just making these numbers up to make a point, but imagine walking around with 20% of your social brain, uh, so unsure of itself that it lives on eggshells. And it's afraid of everything that makes the eggshells break. Mm-hmm. Well, I th- and I think that was the most significant uh, aspect of whatever it was we talked about on that podcast was that the um, uh, the social graces that somebody has when they're stuck with an iPhone in their face and learning how to be a better, or not a better person, but learning how to be a, a little human being, mm-hmm. um, get compromised, right? And how does yeah. that how does that expand out into the future? And um, I guess I wanted to bring you back to the idea of what it was, what was talked about, about, you know, raising healthy kids, because in some way it sounds like the episode today is for how to be a better person. It's kind of like how to raising healthy adults, maybe. Well, I think that's just sort of this theme out there is what does that look like? And mm-hmm. we have all of these different, I don't know, speakers and uh, opportunists, a lot of opportunists out there. And I, honestly, I think everyone's an entrepreneur nowadays, if, if you're aware of how social evolution works and if you're going to try and do anything of... Um, consequence besides starting a charity, you're going to have to become a uh, person who people turn to for a specific kind of conversation. Sure. Right? sure. And, and that's, I think, like let's say George, Jordan Peterson's work and other people's work. I mean, the, the big discourse right now is what does an authentic society look like? How do we get there? And why is it there's so much profoundly, startlingly lack of actual collaboration? Hmm. The title of the podcast, uh, Understanding Jordan Peterson, um, I wonder yeah. if there's, uh, I wonder if there's a dictionary definition of who he is, uh, but, uh, cause I'm concerned that our listeners, viewers might not necessarily know who he is mm-hmm. or have heard of him. Uh, he's a very popular guy in our books, I suppose, just cause I've well, he's sort of a Canadian, him for he, He's sort of a Canadian darling, right? You know, Canadian does good, but he gets himself into, uh, you know, a huge bit of trouble with the identity politics, uh, environment, uh, because he tried to make a point and unfortunately that stirred up a, you know, the relative hornetsness of a polarized argument. And I mean, honestly, that's probably a good thing because we need to shake out what's really, really driving people, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think he understands that's his role. I think other people think he's a politician trying to tell everyone how to think. Right. And he's right. a, uh, he's a clinical psychologist. <laughs> well, and, and he's a, he's a university professor as well, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, that's uni- that's univer- a big thing. Uh, university of Toronto. He's a, uh, uh, got a lot of brain shoved into that somewhat small head of his <laughs> and uh he's got some big ideas and big ways of thinking and that sort of stuff so when you when you say understanding jordan peterson do you actually want to dissect who he is as an individual or were well, you looking to more i think if i was to say i mean obviously for me to speak of what it is to understand another person that's my person attempting to sort out what's the same and different to that person so no one's an expert on anybody else sure right? but i think i can have uh, it should be reasonable for anyone to have an understanding of what they experience around someone else. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd love to hear what your experience is of, you know, what he's got out there and uh, all that too. So Yeah, well, I'm just hoping this was going to be a bit of a dialogue like it not really is. Mm-hmm. So the thing that I notice, in my experience, uh, when I've watched uh, his, you know, material, and usually it's going to be him lecturing on YouTube, and I would say, um, as a caveat, I'd say 80% of what I'm watching is him lecturing in a university, mm-hmm. you know, him debating somebody on the other side of the bird in the sense of left and right. Um, maybe that's 10% where I'm actually trying to understand what the, what, what the bull in the China shop thing is about politics right now. Cause I tend to just sort of roll my eyes cause I have no idea 
why we're this, you know, blatantly stubborn about trying to form an effective society. And that's my opinion. So, uh, not saying anyone's right or wrong. I'm just thinking it's low, really slow. <laughs> right. So when I look at this guy doing his thing and I'm not, um, through what we in psychology call, you know, through a dependent, you know, anxious need to identify with this person, we have kind of the same style. You and him, you mean? Because we're both clinicians. We're mm. trained to sit in a room with people and go through the process of picking apart uh, things in the order they need to in order to come to with light and come to resolution and to action and, you know, self-acceptance and stuff like that. Although, of course, I'm doing it from a slightly different place because Chinese medicine, you know, integrative medicine, we focus more on state and, and kind of flow and, you know, what you're going to learn in a Qigong class or a yoga class as much as what it is you're going to do with the long-term, you know, stories and, and uh, reactions and habits of, of the mind. And that's more of the psychotherapeutic environment. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, although I'm, I've actually taught, I don't know, a whole bunch of that stuff in med school, and that's not what I'm actually, you know, like licensed to do. So I don't want to just start blathering on about, you know, diagnostic criteria that are primarily psychiatric or something. But, you know, one primate to another, watching a guy on a stage, um, standing there going, oh yeah, he's a clinician and he's really trying to help people think about stuff. And his familiar and my familiar place standing in a room full of people is, okay, we have about 60 to 80 hours over the next three and a half months you know, two, three hours, you know, a day or a couple hours a day, two, three times a week for the next period of time for us to unravel a whole bunch of details in ways you can remember it in ways that you get the ethical part of it or the subtle part of it. And I've come to call that throwing a Frisbee. So I'm giving a lecture and it's about, uh, say in Chinese medicine, we call it Qing Zhibing, which is our uh, way of describing mental and emotional imbalances, right? Okay. And I'm trying to teach that class and I'm trying to get everyone to figure out how screwed up religion can be for people when they're already having a really hard time. And I'm not saying religion's good or bad. It's just an interesting to canoe to try to row your mind around in, right? So uh, typically when I taught that course, there would be, always be a period of time in which um, we would learn to either do a little essay or talk about what we understood religion to be, what we thought ours might be. Uh, in our life if we wanted one and really just sort of how that would play out and inevitably you would have people arguing back and forth in the middle of a second or third year medical program about whether or not religion was relevant whether or not anyone's personal ideas were uh, valid or not uh, the whole context right and that would go on because the only way you're going to be able to handle that kind of charged discourse in the clinic with a patient who may be like pretty well hell-bent or heaven-bent on whatever they're up to how, how do you meet that and and you know help, help them navigate that canoe in a way that's helpful well you have to have this period of time that's going to be very restless and conflicting and hopefully collaborative enough that by the end of that say unit in the class everyone has been more or less for, forced into a situation or coerced into a situation or lured into it uh to actually look deeply within their own self to understand how that works. And if you can feel that for the first time deeply, if you've never felt it before, now you know what the person you're talking to feels like. Hmm. And if you can think it through critically, because that's what any form of healing that's going to use language is focusing on, can I help you think this through? Add a new idea, change how that one m might mean to you a bit. So that's a tricky thing to do, because if you're used to doing that, and I've had this happen to me in public speaking enough that I watch him do it and I try not to pee myself laughing because I see him stand up there, get railed up on some subject and he throws a Frisbee. 
And now he has about maybe an hour, maybe 90 minutes to unpack all of the subjective fiddly bits that everyone's going to have about it, everyone's reaction to it, everyone's, uh, you know, standing behind him on the stage. Yeah, I believe you, though you believe, I don't even know what that means. And there's just whole polarized crazy thing. And then you watch him try and help people think it through. Hmm. I, I remember watching this interview he had with somebody, uh, there's been a few where they're asking about how he thinks men and women should try and balance out some things in the workplace. And he says, well, what, and he asks questions like, well, we don't really know, you know, we, here's an example of what might work. Here's an example of what we know doesn't work. But the interview keeps trying to say, well, you just said this. And he said, no, I just asked the question about why aren't we thinking about this? All right. And that's where a lot of the whole phenomena of all these people that are out there, because, you know, with, with how the social media works, if you can make a bold statement, you know, and it causes a polarized reaction with people, even people who don't like what you do are probably going to watch it to just build up a better argument about what you said. Hmm. So there's this whole thing. And I mean, I actually looked at this uh, a couple of days ago because I wanted to do this podcast. Uh, there's a thing you can do called TubeBuddy where you can go in and actually like um, get into the back end of YouTube's analytics and, and actually look at how a person's YouTube channel is working. 70% of what people click on his thing is mostly actually um, TV interviews with the caption that says Jordan Peterson destroys leftist, you know, old lady or you know somebody or other. And when when you look at that, you're like, wow, what what an interesting uh, association with a clinical psychologist who is trying to help people think through their problems to improve society. And that's sort of the essence of his book and and this whole thing is you know you have to start with your personal stuff. And then maybe as you mature, you might have a much more uh, genuine and generous and, and patient way of trying to push society forward. Because all this throwing of rocks back and forth, and he's not a fan of either end of what I call the bird in the sense of left or right. But because of his clickbait statements that people keep throwing up to the top of what YouTube wants to, to see, that's what people think about him. Is he's a old, white, reactionary, conservative uh, person who's like, trying to stop all the young people from getting their way. Mm. And yeah. what he's really saying is, I think we have another problem to deal with first. It's not really that hugely complicated, but I think before we can get into that problem, we have to get into our life a little bit. So we can come back to that problem as clear communicators and more comfortable people. The conversation and what I would call the next collaboration we need to do is more likely to happen. I've encountered a number of people who uh, aren't fans of his ideas or the way he mm -hmm. talks. Mm -hmm. Well, he's, he's, he's a grumpy dad. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, angry um, and a whole bunch of other four-letter words uh, coming after that um, is what uh, friends of mine on social media call him out as being. Mm -hmm. um, and I just don't see it that way. I mean, I'm, I'm able to, I mean, no different than I'm able to sit here and listen to you unpack an idea and follow along, you know, hopefully. <laughs> you know, for the, for the whole course of the hour or so that we're sitting here. Um, and it makes sense because I'm actually listening to the whole conversation. You know, you'll say one thing and it'll take you a while to unpack it and unravel it. Um, and it'll make sense 10 minutes later, uh, or relate to it then. Um, and somewhere I don't think people actually have that, um, patience, uh, with how he talks because what he's talking about are, uh, things that, um, you know, he, he's going around and he's picking at scabs and he's, you know, he's ripping off band-aids really quickly and people are going like, ow, hey, what the, you know, like, stop that. Um, mm -hmm. And because he's, because he's um, you know, picking at ideas that some people may not necessarily um, understand or um, it hurts uh, initially when he says that, um, 
they're sort of whitewashing him um, as being um, an ass or angry or this or that. Yeah, I think what would be interesting, uh, I think in the context of all rhetoric that seems either like super pro this or super anti that, I think it should just be followed by the word yet. We're not ready for completely unexpected gender pronouns yet. Hmm. Uh, we need to revamp society and maybe we need a, uh, what do they call it? A, a minimum something income, whatever they, what is that called? Uh, uh, basically like everyone gets a thousand bucks a month just to make sure everyone's playing fair and can spend extra money to keep the economy going, you know, right. which is an interesting yeah, they've thing done. theoretically. And, and a lot of people have some ideas about how it would be good, how it would be bad. I'm not an economist, uh, but I like the idea of if we can't seem to balance out industry in uh, the whole 1%. I'm curious what the solution will look like when we get to yet. Mm -hmm. right? Because that, that, that's what a collaborative, you know, authentic member of society is going to fo focus on. Well, I guess we're going to have to steer this bird together in a direction where we're willing to go together and we'll get there yet soon. The, uh, I think it's the uh, minimum annual income, basic income, uh, living income. Something like that. Um, the, the thing that I hear people um, uh, frustrating themselves with uh, is that when he talks or he makes these sort of declarative statements, um, they're just saying that he's wrong and um, they don't bother to say why. Um, they don't bother to... to you know, elaborate on their own feelings or their own thoughts of whatever it was he, he brought up. And mm. um, I think they're used to uh, rallying against or fortifying themselves against an opposing idea mm -hmm. in a way that uh, means, oh, that guy's a jerk, you know, and just hold it there um, and not really... Oh, it's, it's way worse than that. He's an effective danger to the future. He could just, he, he could turn this from an, a utopian land where we're all, yeah. you know, walking around in, you know, grass dresses. I'm, I'm not trying to mock people. I'm just saying like there, there's an ideal utopic, relatively socialist, you know, everyone's included, you know, almost like a giant amusement park. And, and if we ever get there, I mean, I'd like to holiday there, but I don't think I'd spend my life there. Hmm. Right. So that, that, that's, I think what, um, the duel is much bigger than offense. Well, the, people are fighting for the future and he's in their mind like Gollum, like some guy who's going to wrangle up the evil forces and, and but, march the agenda back to the 50s. <laughs> okay, but that's my point, is that they get so they, they get so pissed off at the fact that he's making these statements. And yet, uh, my take on him is that he's, uh, as much as he's making these declarative statements, he's also saying, this is an idea that I think is true. And then, you know, in brackets, mm -hmm. not said out loud, is like, what do you think? Yeah. Like, it's a conversation that he's trying to have with people, and yet um, uh, people just sort of are writing him off. Because he's, in, in, my, in my take of things, he's, he's totally, you know, I've seen him on different podcasts, uh, Joe Rogan's um, uh, podcast, I've watched him um, be interviewed there. He's open to discussion around things. Yeah, he's not an idea gog at all. In fact, that's the thing he's the most terrified from. And I think I'll say one more thing with specifically res with respect to understanding this person as a person. Hmm. Um, and we both had the same nightmares around the same time in our life, around, um, you know, say grade 8, 9, 10. And he speaks about this in, in his uh, lectures uh, often. That during that time in his adolescence, uh, he was so uh, traumatized by those dreams and the fear that some big malicious um, 
completely ununderstandable to a 12 year old kid force of, of societies and monies and armies is going to fly over his little town in Canada and bomb them. And most people in my generation had that experience because we were still doing the, uh, you know, there's the alarm hide under your desk just in case there's a nuclear bomb. You know, that's more of a big city Canada thing, but it's still, mm -hmm. you're going to socialize children to the complete annihilation of your fear through drug use or the complete obsession over how is it that the world can create this big of a dragon with that nefarious of an intent, with that much landmass and resources and, and people who hate you willing to fly across the world and kill you, right? And I'm not saying that's any more true or less than it is. It's just when you were growing up in that generation near the end of the Cold War, it wasn't a quiet end. I mean, people were like, tick, 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 what, what's the way we can trigger this, you know, before we actually grow up? Mm -hmm. Luckily, we grew up. So you look at uh, Jordan's career uh, as a, you know, clinician, researcher and everything, and he'll admit to this. I mean, he is profoundly affected by the fact he spent most of 30 years studying the calamities of uh, totalitarian totalitarian regimes across the world. A lot of them turn out to be communist or relatively left and, or extremely left. And um, He's a very earnest guy. If there's a word that I can think of to describe him that may replace the idea of anger or intensity in his speech is he's just very earnest and he's used to throwing frisbees and he's used to having a lot more time to play with ideas and to, to play with the back and forth of things. So he ends up kind of like running out in, in a way, and I've done this too, where you run out in the end of your diving board, <clears throat> proverbially, and you jump up and down in the front of the pool making you know, a whole big statement. And the only reason you're doing it is to get everyone to try swimming specifically to why it is that you're jumping up and down on the board right now. Because if we can learn to swim better and think it through, then we become people who are actually effective at thinking together. Because mm -hmm. that's what a clinical psychotherapist's job is. And he's trying to do it in a room full of people or through YouTube videos or whatever. I actually saw uh, two... Because he has a Patreon page, and uh, one of the things he offers people is, you know, X bucks a month, and then you get a 30-minute, you know, one-on-one uh, -on -one with, with him, like through Skype or through Zoom, right? And then the people have the choice, if they want to record it and put it up on YouTube, to share their 30-minute psych consult with Jordan Peterson. Oh, wow. Cool. He's one of the best clinical psychologists I have ever seen work. A crowd, a room, and an individual. And he is an earnest guy. I mean, he has made the statement from sometime in the 80s. Uh, because of his nature, he works 14 hours a day, every day, in some way towards what he thinks is the, uh, you know, in, inevitable direction of, of his future and his capacity, which why he has all of these programs for people and why he's written this book and why he's a tenured professor and he used to teach at Harvard. I mean, this guy is not, you know, some reactionary anti-hippie who's, you know, a survivalist or something. He's just a guy going... Time to think now, time to throw, you know, uh, red flags at everyone's placards because that's, that's a symptom of a profoundly more dangerous situation than the situation as to why we think we need to change something. Because the way we change is going to have more to do with what the change looks like later mm -hmm. than why we want to change something. And we've lost sight of it on every part of the bird. And I'm going to talk about his rules as we... I agreed to do, to give people something practical and, and a way to actually like understand yourself in the way that uh, I would interpret his uh, ideas. Because after I think we have a sense of what that implication is, if you were to go through those 12 steps um, and or make up your own that had nothing to do with him because in your mind he's a bastard, um, but you did whatever process you could do to prove to yourself you have gone through a definite growth of perspective on being an authentic human, being in a society not observing one, not complaining about one, not reviling one, but 
showing the beep up. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is about because that's why he writes his stuff. That's why he's trying to help people all over, over the places to regain our sense of, oh, yeah, maybe I can do something that matters. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, there's a, a number of articles that I've read uh, over the past couple of months that um, are railing against him and the way he talks and his ideas. Um, certainly there's a number of folks who are saying that he's um, the poster boy for the alt-right and uh, all, all these different uh, political factions and stuff. And yet, um, I don't know if I've had any, got any sort of political leanings. I think I'm somewhere sort of in the middle, you know, left or right, I don't know. But um, I'm not bothered by him in the same way. Maybe it's because I don't fully understand whatever uh, alt-left or alt-right is. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, um, when I uh, first discovered the book, um, the, what is it, the 12... 12 Rules for Life, The Antidote for Chaos. Yeah. I thought um, that's something I'd actually like to read. You know, all, all these different political um, uh, perspectives aside about who he is, I was like, okay, great. Maybe he's a jerk or an ass or this or that, and maybe he's leaning one way or the other. Um, but if he's going to publish something that says, um, here's a way for you to be a better person, and um, if I like the way he spends time to explain his ideas and unravel them in ways that um, work for me in the way that I think, in the way that I um, process things, I'm like, I would like to actually hear what he actually has to say. Um, yeah, and although I admit he definitely pokes the left kind of um, in a hurry to change everything bear in the eye more than the right. Uh, I've seen him lecturing like at a third year psych course and he points over at somebody and says, so let's say you're a lefty. Mm-hmm. And then he talks about what it is polarization uh, does to certain excitatory hormones in your brain and how um, just just the psychology of getting really, really vamped up around an idea more than an actual process that engages the people around you. Because then it's the idea that, that requires consent and or agreement and or adoration instead of, look, we actually built a fence or uh, we took a fence down or... Mm-hmm. You know, we all move together in a way, and he makes exactly the same uh, tongue-in-cheek kind of prying away with someone who's like, you know, fully committed to. Um, and again, I'm not a politician. This is just an example, but someone who's really to the far right, clutching their gun in their basement just in case. You know, someone comes along to finally change that culture, and and I can come back to what that looks like more. I just want to be able to say out loud. I mean, this is a person in terms of Jordan Peterson who's trying to help people see how they see the world. Mm-hmm. And because he spent 30 years watching uh, ideagogues and fascists and other people kill more millions, probably 100 million people in the 20th century, because they wouldn't collaborate, because they took some idea, you know, and you know, statistically it's more likely left to, to go that way than, than otherwise. But either one is equally dangerous because you hit fascist totalitarianism. I don't think the bird cares at this point. It's just crashing. Yeah. Right? And, and he's trying to make that point is to say, notice how this thinks, this kind of thinking changes how you can think. And let's think about that. But people say, he said that I should think about my, my beliefs and my ideals that hold me in place with my, my peer social group, with what I do online, with what I read about, write about, how I fantasize about what's dangerous in the world. I mean, these are instinctual drives, right? So now we created this situation, and I'm not a conspiracy guy, but you look at any screen, you're going to get the loudest person pushing their agenda through it. 
Mm -hmm. If it's clickbait, if it's, I mean, how many uh, mainstream news, um, what are they called, channels? Sure. Um, they're competing for YouTube clicks as much as everybody else and harder because they have the bazillions of money and they're getting really good at clickbait and now we call it false news or fake news. So here, here's a situation where the war is for your attention hmm. in a sense of how social media happens. And unfortunately, the people best at crawling into the face of a screen, especially if it isn't something you chose because you already had a sense of what you wanted to learn about something, you are going to get propaganda. And uh, another thing I saw when I was looking at his, uh, um, um, all, all the kind of math and stats behind YouTube, uh, the most massive number of people who watch his videos are watching his videos that our people have basically stolen or taken or clipped or screen shared or whatever it is that they do. They upload, upload the recording to their YouTube channel and add some ridiculous statement and date and something else. And if you're a fan of his stuff or you just hate him and want to watch him flail because you hate him, the top stuff you're always going to see is predatory little jackals using his, you know, nuggets and or, you know, bad attempts at throwing a Frisbee to try and get people's attention. And it's just all these other people using that, you know, sort of thing to get people to come and click on their hyperbolic statements around what, you know, he may or may not have anything to say about during that actual um, recording because people can write anything. So this is a weird example, but you know, just turned 50 FYI. <laughs> Happy birthday. Thanks. Uh, I find myself times in the evening, I, I don't have commercial television. I'm not interested in the propaganda stuff. So I'll go online and maybe I'll go on YouTube and try and find a, uh, a snippet from one of the more funny, um, you know, late night shows where they, they basically, they can swear, they don't have to worry about, you know, anything. They can be as apolitical or as, you know, directly political. They argue a lot. Um, people yell at each other, it gets really intense, but it's grownups <laughs> having a really good dinner conversation uh, without dinner, you know, as a panel on a late night show. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's where I, I, I get a lot of, you know, my kind of sense of what the, the litmus of where our politics is, because I'm watching people on either side of the bird yelling about the fact that everyone else is wrong and we're all stuck and oh, it's crisis and we have to blame all these people. And then we have, especially in the States, a completely socially unstable uh, process that's going on. I don't think any, at any point in the, ha in the past, as far as I can remember, have we spent, um, have we experienced, or at least have I experienced that volume of anticipation anytime I go to see what's going on in, in, in the world of the news? Because every day, almost, you're left with, oh God, we're so far beyond what we need to be doing, hmm. at least in my opinion. So anyway. Um, I'm going to come back to my take on what we might want to do to solve the problem. But in order to do it well, I would encourage people first to at least have a quick drive-by of Jordan Peterson's 12 rules and notice that they have nothing to do with anything else than you being more you. Yeah. And, um, I think it's really interesting how, um, in the media as well, everyone's sort of playing up the idea that, you know, he's just, uh, preaching to a, a crowd of, um, hungry young men. Uh, who want to hear these ideas and they're sort of uh, using that as a negative thing uh, and yet um, I'm thinking <laughs> well wait a minute if here's a part of society that actually wants to better themselves and they just happen to be male then who really cares like I don't know I it, maybe I haven't investigated or I've heard too much about that type of argument um, I mean the fact that based on our present psychological orientation to our society 
and the fact that we have completely from the way social uh, instincts worked um, and still work for most people unless you're literally unless you're famous or wealthy you're going to have the instinctual social dynamic kind of i don't know chip in your mind of a person in a medieval village hmm. right so now we have this medieval village where the most uh, importantly thing, the, most, the thing we most uh, rapidly want to discount is the potency of the masculine. Because right now we're trying to find a way to balance the masculine and feminine. I think that's obviously on the menu. But again, the, the dilemma is statistically and obviously why, you know, millions of young men are flocking to, you know, watch his videos or read his books is he's saying to them, you know, I really think you could do this if you just pulled up your pants. You know, I think you could actually like really get your life together and, you know, get past the fact that you and your dad never really, you know, met in the way you needed to. And, you know, everyone can blame each other. But at some point we're going to have to find the tools and the inspiration and the experience to move on. Mm-hmm. And you know, I admit that, you know, when I went through his book, there was two places where he went into politics. And I personally, as a clinician, think he took it too far because it was a good example. But it was like there's extra page of kind of like spanking and stuff where I'm like, okay, man, like those people definitely are you know, really upset about what they're upset about and really doing everything they can. But I don't think we have to spank them, you know, to in any way improve all of our ability to think about it. So I think he has definitely fallen across the speed bump of rhetoric at times. But when you sit back and look at 95% of what he's trying to say or do, he's just committed to helping people say to themselves, you know, I think I can actually pick myself up and move ahead if I actually take some time to work out why I'm limping. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. that's... that's I can't think in, I cannot put that in any other terms than one of the most valuable things for anybody who's stuck. Yeah. The, uh, uh, the idea of him being something of a, uh, go-to person around rules and how to be unstuck is, um, you know, I don't, maybe I just see the bigger picture. It's like, wow, here's somebody who's got some direction, some guidance that seems to be pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by pretty good, it doesn't sound like he's full of crap <laughs> and his heart's in the right place. At least yeah. I think it is. Seems to be. Um, and you know, I'm totally biased. I'm a 50 year old, uh, white guy living in North America. Uh, and yet, um, if he's going to, uh, put out his information and it appeals to a bunch of other, uh, younger white guys in North America and it helps them be better people, you know, is that really such a bad thing? I don't know. He's helping people that are coming here from all over the world. I mean, I love it when people come out to the microphone during one of his lectures and they're a marginalized person. Hmm. And they say what it's like to be a marginalized person. And, you know, a lot of the people that are, you know, anti-Jordan Peterson because they're all about, you know, massive inclusion of everybody yesterday. Um, those people who are marginalized people are say, thank you so much for giving me perspective on how this is actually going to actually go in the next probably decade and how I have to learn to steel myself inside to move forward in in the most ethically collaborative way with all of these people who just hate everything that they don't like. Because, I mean, you know, imagine you're a refugee from somewhere and you come to a university and you meet all of the people who are pro-universal um, dollar and anti what's going on in the Middle East. And now you're basically the, I mean, when I was a kid, it's like being a token Indian. You're like, oh, yeah, now you're the token, you know, refugee who's we're going to put up in front of us and say, look at who is important. We're trying to save themselves. And they're like going, I would just like to go to school and get my degree and, you know, come back and find my family and maybe bring them to a country that isn't exploding and... Yeah, how, how can I do that in a way that's actually ethical given my previous culture and the new one that I'm going to be participating in for the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. 
So a lot of times people come up to the microphone and just say, well, thank you so much for giving me the insight on what it's going to take for me to be patient and really, really consistent within my own being to get through this really restless, tumultuous time. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, we've used this analogy before, you know, he's, he's there, he's passing out flashlights too. He's shining them in all different corners. Yeah, and I think he did a, uh, somebody took a whole bunch of the letters he was getting and he had 60,000 letters from people. Two of them were from people from the transgender community who said that they felt that he was not, um, well, just essentially honoring the fact that these people's identities and the struggle that they go through is so, so intense that as a psychotherapist, his lack of compassion for their struggle was, was offensive to them, but not just on, on some statement saying, I think these protons are, pronouns aren't really cool. You know, he doesn't like them. So he's had two letters out of 60,000 saying, you know, slap on the wrist, you know, well, clearly you're trying to figure this out, but, you know, this is a very painful thing for us. Overwhelming number of people from the transgender community who sent him letters say, thank you so much for getting me out of the entanglement I was getting into with this crazy group of people at my college library who are convinced that we have to, like, start, you know, burning down buildings and stuff and i'm exaggerating but i'm also just sort of bring up where jordan peterson's mind is likely to go which is the radical left if it goes the way it did in russia is going to kill like half the population of canada so as a very earnest person who's trying to you know help people out he's reacting to something that may or may not not happen but i'd rather be someone looking at that possibility than ignoring it mm. not suggesting i have any you know dog in the game uh about how that's going to play out because I think we're, we're way more, um, I don't know. Once we do the 12 rules and I'll talk about this thing I want to talk about, I think we're going to have a, a really good model about how to move forward. But again, having said that, uh, the last thing I want to say is of that 60,000 letters, a whole bunch of them were from alt-right people who said, thank God for getting me out of the militia that I was starting to train to go and take a, you know, banks and the federal reserve out. So although he might be poking some people in the eye, he's actually reducing the population of people who were probably going to call terrorists someday on both sides of the bird. Mm -hmm. Hard to point a stick at that and say pure evil. Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, you mentioned the 12 rules there a second ago. Yep. Do you want to get into that? I'm sure. Uh, let me grab my handy dandy list of 12 rules. <laughs> Uh, conveniently located right here on my iPhone. Um, so w you said you had your own perspective or your own, I guess, interpretations for his different rules? Well, he's a psychologist. Okay. Right? So when he's talking about things, he's going to be talking about things uh, from a point of which where I would say is mind down. Like if I can make these decisions and reduce this, I don't know, habit of lying or exaggerating and, you know, clean up my room, <laughs> whatever. Right. Uh, maybe I'll have a, a different sense of myself mentally. So because of the way that I work with more energy medicine, acupuncture, the shamanic side of things, um, and how important state shift is in the release of actual organic illness, I'm trying to find a way to interpret what he's saying as he's saying it, and then maybe hitting the elevator down into where you're actually like an instinctual animal a bit, and see if those shifts of uh, perception and self-perception and world perception might get you out of your friggin' head. Because mm -hmm. that's where the argument is. And I mean, that's, I think, also where he's kind of stuck is I really want you guys to think this through. But at the same time, can we do it with less words? Mm. You know, can we just focus on our own, you know, renewal of ourselves? Sure, sure. Um, so again, I'm not entirely clear on how it is you actually want to approach this whole uh, one? section. <clears throat> you want to just go through the rules then? Pick one and we'll play with it. Um, hang on, let me just make a note to myself here. 
Um, so Peterson's 12 rules, um, uh, outlined in the book, uh, 12 rules for life, antidote for chaos. Uh, it's a number one bestseller across the planet, across Amazon. Uh, audiobook is pretty cool because it's his voice. Yeah, that was my favorite part. Yeah. Um, I really dig the way he talks. I don't know. Uh, he's, he's, he's an earnest man. Yeah. Um, definitely. Um, I mean, some people like to listen to audiobooks on double speed. He's the guy I, I got to listen to on half speed. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I think I'd have to take breaks. <laughs> the old pause button for sure. Uh, Peterson's 12 Rules. Uh, and again, I'm referencing this from not necessarily the book, but from a listing I found online uh, via The Guardian. Rule number one, uh, stand up straight with your shoulders back. Yeah, so in the book, uh, I mean, I think we can all uh, affirm that a person with a good posture or a person who has kind of like a crap day who suddenly comes out of that crap day and says, you know what, I'm going to meet this head on. Mm -hmm. That shift of state uh, and that shift of capacity is what we call confidence because you're you're not just going to keep giving up. So by actually moving around in the world with a a sense of, um, I wonder what poise, not maybe not grace, but but a sense of actually like being completely in good posture, open chest, not because you're trying to be intimidating, but because a person who stands with their head up and their shoulders back, although they might look like they're in the army in one way, what they're doing is trying to walk around the world going, I'm completely present and open to this. Mm -hmm. I'm not like holding my shoulder up, like trying to be a tough uh, domineering alpha male. I'm going, okay, I'm present to this. It, uh, when I, when I read that myself, um, and it, it made me just think of, uh, you know, uh, kind of the idea of, um, um, just stand up straight, stiff upper lip, uh, like that kind of old. Yeah, uh, but that, that's where people get it wrong. Well, I, I, I know, but I mean, okay. the, the, the idea of actually having some kind of um, mental fortitude over a particular situation uh, to affect your posture in such a way that you actually um, uh, give yourself some sort of confidence. I, I'd have to just throw out a word that's precise, and I can't tell the whole story why this is important because we'd be here for the rest of the day, but... When it comes to the application of our power or intent or whatever that mojo thing is that we do, mm. there's a huge difference between power over and power for. So if I have a stiff upper lip, which is the, you know, there's always the joke about holding a turd under your nose. Right? Yeah, well, as long as I'm picky and I keep my stiff upper lip, I'll be fine. Right. Right. I, I can hold my, you know, 16th century uh, English politeness with my corset, you know, tied too tight and the 19th different, you know, pieces of silverware next to my food because I'm playing out this whole thing and the opposite is something that we're above. So we're over it. Not over it like, you know, bah, see you later. Over it like, look at us, pretensive rich people crushing the skulls of anything beneath us, beneath us. Right. Whereas power four is like, I wonder if I voted wholeheartedly in the direction of good. I would inevitably, hopefully, engender or at least engage in what is good. Hmm. But that's a for statement, not an overstatement. So when it comes to this from my take, uh, stand straight with your shoulders back, he actually talks about how uh, lobsters, lobster posture, lobster size, lobster body language, and the release of serotonin are kind of what he would call a research uh, opportunity to engage in the fact that if you can be what I call present to state and adapt in your state for whatever it is that needs to be, you know, met in the world, you are now a highly present adaptable person and or primate, depending on how you like to think of yourself. Hmm. Right. And if you're going to do it with power for instead of power over, it will always be in the state of collaboration because you want to see how this is going to go with instead of against. Hmm. I guess, uh, my understanding of what, uh, stiff upper lip means as the way you describe it there 
it's totally different. Oh. And I, I just see it as being like, you know, quit being a slouch, <laughs> you know, um, stand up straight and you'll feel better. I mean, that's about as simplistic as I actually, um, experience it in my own mind. Yeah. That, and that, that's why people don't like him because we hear the 1950s dad make a command instead of ask ourselves why it is that that might be good for us. Mm-hmm. And people are tired of being told what to do. So here we have this generous, intellectual, very well-trained psychotherapist saying, this is an experiential opportunity. Here's an interesting thing about lobsters that might give you a sense of what it is um, that encourages us as, as individuals to be more dynamically engaged in what you would call a hierarchy, social hierarchy. And it's not about being the winner and, and, and the master. It's about being a good dancer mm-hmm. yeah, with, and, with everybody else. And and I guess that's how I saw it as well. It's just something that it's like, um, you know, here's here's something that you can do that's simple, um, just with your body, um, that affects your, um, you know, the way you take space in the world. And, um, uh, you know, certainly do that with uh, the grace of actually being um, nice about it, not a, not a jackass. Oh. <laughs> and it's fundamentally self-deterministic. So in my autonomy, in my good posture, in my calm gaze, and my lack of sudden need for, you know, placards or decals on my clothing to tell people who I'm supposed to be or what they're supposed to know about the world or about me or be afraid of, you're actually just standing there going, okay, a bunch of messy people, babes in the woods, yelling about a bunch of stuff, but yet not really collaborating. Mm -hmm. So step one to collaborating is to become state aware of yourself. And then you're... you can naturally become more of other people aware of other people's state. You know, you're in college and you're walking down the hall and you're that nerdy kid who hasn't really figured out, you know, how to move over that social hurdle, but you've decided no matter what, you know, you're just going to own your own space. Mm-hmm. And then the way you're influenced by other people who are trying to determine your reaction to their space because they're so overt, it's kind of like, <laughs> whatever, you know, I'm, I'm within myself moving ahead to solve whatever I need to, to move ahead. And collaboration would be cool, but right now you guys are running off to a rally, so I'm going to go and do the thing that actually feeds me about me, not feeds me about what we share as um, crisis knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, rule two, uh, treat yourself like you would someone you are responsible for helping. Yeah, so treat yourself as good as your pet. Mm-hmm. How many people actually would go out of their way to take better care of their pet than themselves? I know uh, I've done it <laughs> and it's because I have this belief that, um, you know, I'm ultimately responsible for, uh, the pooch, sorry, the pooch I had, uh, ultimately responsible for everything about that dog and how it actually interfaces with my world because, um, he's in my world. I'm not in his, if I was in his, yeah. I'd be sniffing his butt and lifting my legs on trees. <laughs> But I'm not. He's in mine. He's yeah. in my house. He's sleeping beside my bed. He's uh, in the back seat of my car. Um, you know, like I've got to keep my eyes open for everything that's going on for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that takes a lot of work. Yeah. So if we can see ourselves as deserving of, you know, that kind of attention and uh, move ahead to satisfy even something basic if you're new to like taking care of yourself in that way, pick a little thing, work your way up. He often says, especially with people, you know, with chronic mood problems and, you know, a lot of trauma, pick one thing the next day that you can do for 15 minutes that, you know, is going to fundamentally, you know, help you treat yourself better. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's something as simple as cleaning your room or, um, you know, whatever, but you're, you're just honestly going like, what can I do for myself? And what this brings to my mind uh, on a subtle level and, and leads to the point of maybe a 
the bigger picture of this conversation. Rule two for me is being present to reciprocity. Reciprocity. There's this whole give and take between self and others, self and God, if that happens to be a part of your living mm -hmm. room, self and money and debt and bills so that you can have a foundation in the world. You can't just go and, you know, roll over rocks and gather bugs anymore. Well, you can, but who? <laughs> right? So we, ha we have this need to assess and balance the resources that are moving around in the world. And once we become more collectively aware of that, not in, I said collectively, sorry, um, more collaboratively aware <laughs> of the opportunities to, to actually lift each other up by the bootstraps by being more aware of ourselves, like stand up with your shoulders back, you know, start treating yourself the way you kind of fantasize about treating the people that you hope to be your friends one day. They're going to notice that you're, you know, already aligned with what it is that intention is. And now the friendship begins because as you learn to take care of humans, yourself included, and meet them and deal with their foibles, now all of a sudden you're a person who's more... Uh, capable uh, of interacting with strangers, you know, col uh, collaboratively to make, you know, whatever needs to happen next. And that's what a friendship is, is let's pick up this box and move it over there and, you know, hire a DJ or let's move that box over there because it's in the middle of the road and it's going to cause an accident or, but as, as long as the, the, the idea of you take care of your pet, take care of yourself the way you take care of your pet is to realize that we're all here to actually sort of share and, and deal with this reciprocity thing. And if we're just a bit more sensitive to it, it's a lot harder to be greedy, <clears throat> right? It's a lot, then, a lot easier to be generous. Well, it's inevitable because if, if you really want to improve your state and you look at a person across the college cafeteria and they don't have lunch and they're clearly, you know, anemic and well, let's say you're studying medicine and you can see they're having a really hard day. <laughs> You know, do, do you sit there and steal yourself and go, people should compete and, you know, it's all on each of us to, to like, you know, get through this and intact in any way at all. Or you walk up and say, hey, look, I got half of this, you know, thing left over and I got to go to the gym later. So would you like this food? And, mm -hmm. well, um, and you yeah. know, sit down and actually engage the person and share it with them or, you know, offer it to them. But now you're effectively collaborating as an authentic member of a society to help everyone to the next day right and again the idea is um you're treating yourself in that way yeah right it feels great to be a good person so um you know if you're somebody who's inclined to uh, always be helpful to our others you know uh, what would it be to be the kind of generous person who could just come back and say hey you know what i need to treat myself better i need to do better things for myself um and do that in a um really authentic self-loving kind of way and this is, a, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but when I have patients that are really stuck and they're really stuck in their own place, like it's me and my divorce and my kids and my money and there's me and I'd say, maybe it would be good to go to the soup kitchen and serve all those homeless people who really can't find a place to live and maybe today can't throw together the wherewithal to feed themselves. So why not go there and actually enact the generosity that we all need to move forward. And I've had so many people come back from that adventure saying, okay, thank you so good so much for allowing me to recognize that I had lost my humility. Mm -hmm. I was just angry at my divorce and angry at, you know, how it was going. And now I have my humility. So now you have these amical divorces happening where they're, you know, everybody's not an ass. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Hope, hope. Uh, rule three, make friends with people who want the best for you. Yeah, uh, not, not, not much to change there. You know, if, if you're not picking your tribe because you have a motivation for yourself to move in the, in the world to get somewhere, 
you are going to, and we all do this in high school. We probably all do this for a while in college. We, we just band together with our particular, you know, brand of misfit. Mm -hmm. And that misfit might be the football team. It might be the guys smoking weed behind the football team, <laughs> you know, but we, we, we have to pick some kind of social orientation. When we become present to state, right? Rule one, when we come present to reciprocity in the give and take in life and become present to the realization that, um, are you here to be effective or are you here to watch or are you to just complain? Mm -hmm. If you're here to be effective, uh, and every entrepreneur workshop and master class or anything I've ever been to, this is the statement they all say, and this has been years. You are the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. And that could be, you know, your mentors, your family, your friends, maybe some online guru who you watch their tapes over and over and over again. Maybe it's Jordan stuff or whatever, but, uh, you have to pick the people that influence you or else it's misfits forever. Yeah. I've heard the same sort of statement around income. You know, uh, that, that's the big thing for entrepreneurs. You want to get rich going, it's whatever. If you're looking for six figures, if your friends aren't all six figure friends, you need more six figure friends. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not saying that's my advice. Yeah. I'm just saying that's what the entrepreneurs say. Yeah. Uh, and you're not an entrepreneur. Well, so. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm just not selling, selling. <laughs> that's always what happens to people. They get successful online and then they have seminars on how to be successful online. That's that right. Just, just seems like a weird step back. <laughs> Let's remember that when we were kids, you know, uh, learn how to make money stuffing envelopes. Learn how to make money stuffing envelopes in 995 to this address <laughs> and get a letter inside that says, put an ad in the paper saying, learn how to stuff envelopes <laughs> for 995. Yeah, that's a... Uh... Yeah, that's going around. Yeah. Um, rule four. Rule four. Uh, compare yourself with who you were yesterday, not who you, not who someone else is today. Not with, not with, <clears throat> let's try that again. Rule four. Compare yourself with who you were yesterday, not with who someone else is today. Well, that's like one of the most sane things I think I've ever seen in print. Mm -hmm. But if we were to decide to do that more experientially, so what is it like to see yourself yesterday as negative? Um, I don't know. Or in process or less positive than you wanted, or maybe even more positive than you thought. What's it like? We all do it. Call it a shoulder check. Okay. Well, yesterday I had, you know, this much sleep. I had this much food. My stress was nine out of 10 or two out of 10. My primary relationships are, you know, you know, five by five, or they're probably going to end in five minutes. You know, all of the things that, that relate to state and our adaptability. So if I look back at myself yesterday and begin a list of complaints, um, and maybe I put that in my fridge as things to resolve as a part of my identity structure over time, then, then I'm kind of researching myself, mm -hmm. you know, oh yeah, well, I've got foibles. We all do. But if you can do that, uh, with, with a kind of sort of humble compassion. And I think that's where like a lot of the journaling things, and I think Jordan has this, uh, past authoring thing where you can go back and look at all the most impactful things that have happened in your life that have changed how you see you and to just basically write some essays and, and some thoughts and some, uh, very, very personal, uh, assessments of what those experiences have done to you. Cause if, until you've actually kind of like, say you've been written, run over a car in a cartoon where that's not going to hurt you, but you're, you're still look like you got run over a car and you're popping your joints back together and, you know, wiping off the dust and parts of a tire out of your ear or whatever your funny image is trying to keep it safe. 
Mm-hmm. Um, once we knock ourselves off, then you kind of have to just take your, your, your list of, okay, well, I've got to fix up those things. And if you turn away from that list and decide inebriation, uh, Netflix, uh, more YouTube, more, uh, you know, cannabis or uh, whatever, or, uh, what I'll do is become a, uh, super intense, um, alt-right NRA, you know, revolutionary, or I'll become a really intense, um, you know, fairness now, no matter who has to suck it up, you know, ah, then you're not looking at yourself. Yesterday, you're creating a future identity structure that as long as I can maintain feeling righteously indignant, all that other negative stuff will probably just be ignored by most people because how could it possibly matter? I'm wearing the right placards. I've got the tattoo now. I'm wearing the armband. I'm threatening my parents who still believe in paying taxes or whatever. I'm just making this up. But the whole point of Jordan's thing is, are you paying attention to yourself? Can you think this through? Do mm-hmm. you need help thinking this through to the point where you can act on the decisions you make? And this is my favorite one. Because we live in the land of fractured mirrors. Everywhere you look, there is someone who's the best in the world at that. Mm-hmm. You know, so, oh yeah, I'd like to go to the gym and maybe, you know, lose 10 pounds and maybe even, maybe even look pretty good, you know, uh, go on YouTube. Oh yeah, I'm going to take up some, you know, crossfit or some resistance training and all you see is a bunch of apollonian gods and you look at yourself in the mirror and go right maybe it's tai chi for me <laughs> you know because those people more or less seem to look familiar but now i've lost my you know my person tomorrow because it was exaggerated and it had nothing to do with who was going to get there in the first place mm-hmm. so we have to do some homework to move ahead yeah well and it's uh the way it's worded there too it's 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 not with who someone else is today yeah. It's, uh, and I think that's, that's two different people. I think that's, um, oneself as being the someone else and someone else as being someone else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so as long as we can at least look at our laundry list and do laundry every day about the laundry list we're carrying around and you got your, you know, shoulders back, head up, you're aware of state, you're aware of reciprocity. You're not being impatient. Uh, rule number five, uh, do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. So he's a big advocate of, um, I wouldn't call social homo- homogeneity, but you know, it's not like he's trying to create Maoist China where everyone wears blue coats, right? I think his point is more, um, we've noticed in the last generation or two uh, on lots of levels, not just what we talked about last week, that we're fundamentally like a disparate culture now in terms of memes and meaningful and inspiration and decision-making and, you know, what actually pushes us over the yes or no place with, with all kinds of parts of our life. It's the idea, I think, of actually uh, having um, kids be uh, disciples. Um, and right. uh, I think that's a, a very profound thing that I experienced as a kid where um, I'm the youngest of five. And by the time I showed up, everyone was kind of out of the house. At least it felt that way. Uh, and as a teenager, a uh, young teenager, having my dad treat me as um, something of an equal, um, it's like, hey, I want you to help me do this today uh, because, you know, you're taller than I am and you can reach the tall parts. Um, and um, I'm going to show you what to do um, so that next time I tell you to do it, you can do it on your own. Right. You know, um, to sort of guide and nurture and mentor uh, me um, all the while. You know, he wasn't a total dick about the whole thing, mm-hmm. uh, but he wasn't my best friend. Um, 
and uh, I respect him greatly for that. Yeah, and nowadays we're going to have to find maybe uh, an app, <laughs> all right, <laughs> uh, that allows us to negotiate with our, our young, especially adolescent children, towards a formal um, debate. I mean, I thought about this with my son because um, he's 17, he's getting ready to go off to university. And like I said, I kind of overdid the friend hippie dad thinking that was the more you know new age, modern thing to do. And I live in, we both live in the mecca of kind of the new age. And, uh, you know, you, you said the previous one, you know, like, well, if you're surrounding yourself with these people as the people who tell you how to be a person and they're all doing this, you know, extreme version of, you know, buddy parenting. So I kind of gave it, you know, the... A bit of a try mm -hmm. right, in that way and i can see how that's a completely bad idea for a lot of people i mean there's probably you know maybe one of the whatever number of kids that would benefit more from that but my my kid's kind of the kid who actually took a year off to go to germany for grade 11 and you know got all this crowdfunding to spend a year in germany mm -hmm. and we grew up in the hippie town and he came back and said this place is a black hole of bs the rest of the world is actually trying to deal with the rest of the world and this little bubble everyone's just friend friend friends so now here we are parents who maybe tried that like i tried that and the thing that i thought would be the best thing for me and my son in the sense of our relationship continuing towards you know hanging out together and becoming adults i actually want to have a formal debate with him hmm. about whatever moderated yep sit down you get your two minutes and you can get as heated and as insulting as whatever you want but we're going to keep it in the frame of a debate so that the conflict that we need to be allowed to have, which is going to be a big part of what I want to talk about later, um, <clears throat> is allowed to happen, but in a way that's not out of control. Because mm -hmm. again, kids today, that, that's, that's the thing that kind of just jars them as a bunch of uncontrolled uh, communication and body language and potential threat that's not a part of their reality. So I think that's, I mean, honestly, having conflict, there's an old native saying, uh, violence is due to a lack of conflict. So you want to have a really, really healthy kid that's not going to go off and do something violent? Learn to have some good debates. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, rule six. Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. And when I read that rule, it sounded like, I don't know how many biblical uh, verses I'd read before, you know, pick the thing out of your own eye before you poke it into somebody else's or right. I, don't, I don't remember what it is, but... Um, it just makes sense. Yeah. How do you know you're a responsible person if you're, especially in a situation where you're now somehow responsible for the tipping point of an entire society? I don't, I'm not saying young people don't deserve to have the opinions they have at all. They're, they're doing more to move this around than I think anyone else has ever have in a long time. It's exciting to watch. At the same time, I'm watching these young people uh, posture up in a way to fill their state. Cause again, that's the medicine I practice is more about what your neurophysiology is doing now to itself, not what your dad did. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you, if you're going to go out there and, and save the world and, you know, scream and throw rocks at people, I think it really does make sense to just sit there and say, okay, am I together about me? Am I together about my family? Am I together about what happened to me as a kid? Do I really understand the economy well enough to actually have if anything else than a screaming change now or never bad, mm -hmm. right? And I don't think kids need to become politicians or economists. I think from where Jordan's coming from when he gets into the politics is, is hey, we're just not there yet. We have something else to do first, right? And that's the point I'm going to come to when we're done with the 12 rules is 
there's this thing that we need to do. And the only way we're going to do that together in the sense of, you know, trying to solve the world's problems is to start making sure we actually are clear with how we are going to do that ourselves as ourselves, not as our ideas. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's too easy to just, you know, pick up a sign and, you know, yell a slogan. And it doesn't matter which side of the fence or the bird you're on. It's that that is not a collaborative state. That is an argument and a potentially violent state. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, rule seven, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. Yeah. And you know, now we got, uh, what is it? Amazon prime with the, uh, drones that can drop off your, you know, frozen spaghetti and a new, uh, you know, DVD on something you want to watch <laughs> in like 20 hours, which I think is, you know, in a way kind of cool, but it just makes the, the point, I think that it's really hard to attend to the quality of being a person that we call meaningful, right? When we're in reaction full or exhaustion full mm -hmm. or, um, you know, where we're just going to focus on being a tricky entrepreneur, regardless of whether or not we're being profoundly ethical because, uh, we're not looking at this in the state of it's meaningful. So for me, when I think of what, what he was bringing up there is, until you're really kind of rolling around in the hay with what's meaningful to you, it's unlikely you're going to have the risk reward kind of gumption or mojo or piss and vinegar to go on the, you know, archetypical hero's adventure and change your world and fundamentally change your you. I mean, this, this is, you know, basic human psychology. He's a really gifted clinical psychologist. He's asking you, are you ready? And do you know what it's like to feel like you're ready to go deeper? Mm-hmm for you which is for us but you know yeah yeah for sure and i mean when i read that it, it, you know i reflect on my own sort of um commitment to things that are important um you know pursue what's meaningful meaning to me that means um pay attention to what you committed to um in a way where um it benefits both you and whatever it is you committed to as long as it matters to someone more than the out uh, outcome. Yeah. <clears throat> Cause that's the meaningful part, right? Otherwise yeah. we're just robots. Well, sure. Yeah. And I, I guess that goes with, you know, how I'm talking about how my sort of, um, lens on that. And, um, yeah, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not doing some kind of semantic spanking. I'm just wanting to make sure that if, if what you say leaves people in any way allowed to abandon that scary, messy place, I just want to bring their face right back into the mud. So yeah. It's about what's meaningful. You don't know what that is until you actually unravel a lot of distraction. Mm -hmm. Well, and uh, absolutely. And I think the um, the word for me, commitment, actually means that. It's like, you know. Um, yeah, and that's, that's half of his point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, there's a pile of crap over there. And uh, I need to uh, unpack that and pay attention to it and uh, stick to it. And because I'm committed to myself being a better person, I'm going to do that as opposed to what's just expedient, which is, you know, um, get some Febreze and spray it in the air. <laughs> you know? What? So, oh, hey, it smells so much better. <laughs> it's so great. Ow. Yeah. Um, anyways, I'm not Jordan Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> ah, go for it. Uh, rule number eight. Tell the truth, or at least don't lie. That is, like, I get shivers every time. You want me to say it again? <laughs> oh, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> uh, 
Um, were, were you brought up with that sort of idea of tell the truth? Yeah, I mean, I mean, was well, that I was mean, that was that like an explicit rule, or was that oh, something God, you just yeah. sort of picked up? <clears throat> oh yeah, but I was. I mean, this is going to sound so bad. One of the fundamentally misformations in my identity structure, if we're going to be having a psychology conversation. Um, Let me get my clipboard. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's meant to bring something really, I don't know, unique to the conversation, I think. So I grew up in what you would call a hunting lodge or a dude ranch where people would come to get on a horse and go and, you know, learn what it takes to shoot a moose and ride it back. Or they would come and stay in cabins and go on horse rides and, you know, go to the river to get wet or go fishing in the lake or just like, you know, camping adventure, but in then, you know, an old, uh, uh, hunting lodge, you know, post, uh, like log houses and log cabins and mm-hmm. no, no TV or radio. So it was pretty subtle, but for whatever reason, um, my parents got it in their minds that I was psychic because I kept predicting what people would do. And I thought it was really funny that people were so predictable um, in the way they got on and fell off horses or whether or not this couple's going to have a huge fight over what someone just did around the corner that I saw that the other person didn't or whatever. So in no way do I think in any word that I'm psychic. I'm a bit empathic. I think most of us are, but for whatever reason, my parents kind of made it a thing where if guests were around and I was in the room, they'd try and find some fancy way for me to do some really goofy psychic prediction thing. <laughs> were you like a uh, a monkey? they just throw a quarter at you and you'd dance? Well, that would have probably been easier to kind of recover from because, <laughs> I mean, they actually got me a book when I was eight or nine years old on ESP and they were just convinced that, you know, they're a bit hippies, maybe. Well, maybe half and half, but I'm just saying that, you know, that from that experience of when you're asking, like that I grew up in a family that was pretty like, tell the truth, don't lie, you get a spanking. Absolutely. At the same time, I was in a situation where I was kind of a circus act where making stuff up was the, the thing that made everybody laugh and got me included in staying up later. So I, I definitely learned to be um, a creative empath, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that that's, you know, thrown a couple of curveballs into my life at a couple of times where I'm like, you know, like say Jordan Peterson or me on a stage as a professor, as a clinician lecturing to a crowd of people who aren't there to study what we're teaching. We throw a Frisbee out there and I've watched him do this a couple of times, although I'll never... I'm good at body language. You can tell when someone's just making stuff up. <laughs> but there's times when I've been on stage where I'm like, well, this would be a really good metaphoric kind of analogy. So I'll say this as if it's actually true to get people thinking about that as a consequential environment. And then you play it out. And unfortunately, at some point, someone's going to ask you, hey, wait a minute, that's impossible or that couldn't have happened because. And you're like, well, yeah, it was a story to try and help you guys think. And then people get all offended and betrayed because you just made something up. And you're like, the point wasn't whether or not I ever, you know, lived in a cabin with a giraffe. The point is <laughs> that sometimes you have to make room for your friends because they, they see the world different or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. but, it, but it's, I'm just saying that's, that's been with the honesty thing, the thing that I'm, uh, you know, I still find myself, especially in, in ab- Aboriginal ceremonies when you're trying to like create a contextual thing, that's actually native tradition. If you can tell a good enough story that helps someone figure out analogously a way to see themselves in the world. That's a traditional story now. It's never meant to be true or literal. It's meant to be, you know, a way of playing something out for people. Mm -hmm. And and having said that about Aboriginal culture, if you went off as a scout to hunt for trap lines or, you know, herds of bison or whatever, when you came back into the camp, and this is, I'm not making this up, this used to be the way it worked. You would get on your knees, hold a sacred object, men would stand around you with weapons, and you would speak what you saw. And they would ask you three times, is that the truth? And if you said yes, 
you would be allowed to get up and go and feast and get ready for the hunt, right? If they found out you were lying, hmm. um, let's just say you're not going to be going looking for the herd much. Hmm. So there's there's playful honesty in the sense of help people see themselves in the world honesty and not literally honest. And then there's, we need to know exactly where the food is or we're all going to die. So we're going to hold this club over your head and say, say again where you saw the food. Because <laughs> this young man's like, I just want to be popular and my girlfriend's looking at me. So uh, yeah, there was the, the bisons was, uh, <laughs> they were, they were circling over there. There was tons of them. So you should have seen them. They were dropping dead easy. So we've got a culture that's that earthy and, you know, bound to the ground, as we would say, people would still have formal ways to say, are you sure you're not lying? Because if we run over that hill and it's no food, I mean, that's not good. Yeah. So there's lots of ways to, you know, be a, an authoritarian in the world. Well, I, it, the, the rule for me just sort of, again, speaks to the whole idea of, um, uh, I mean, the title of the podcast, becoming an authentic member of society. That's the point. Right. Yep. Um, and what a, um, uh, what a thing to live up to. Um, there's a Dale Carnegie rule that I remember uh, reading years ago, um, appealing to somebody, appealing to somebody's nobler motives, like how to win friends, win friends and influence people. Yeah, yeah. You know, <clears throat> and appealing to their nobler motives is kind of what I read in all that, uh, telling the truth or at least don't lie. Um, you know, uh, the whole world loves somebody telling the truth. It's It's so freeing. Yeah. It's so freeing when you finally decide that, I mean, I never have to remember anything. I never have to drop that conversation to remember way I, which way I kind of like controlled the outcome. You're just sort of like, hi, I'm present. I got my shoulders back. I'm in state. I'm in reciprocity. I'm fundamentally interested in collaborating with people who seem to actually have their poop together in the direction I want to go. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm in no way in, in some kind of impatient, driven, narcissistic hurry because I'm actually aware that I'm trying to improve myself. And that's just about me step by step. And, you know, it's got to be 50-50. You're going to pick the wrong direction half the time and learn from that and turn around and go, okay, now this is going to take twice as long because I'm being honest with myself because don't lie. You know, and now you can go on the adventure as an empowered, authentic person who's trying to at least welcome yourself to the participation element of society. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm showing up. I'm showing up as me. You know, I'm learning to... Um, be less stretched out in the world so I can actually show up in it. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it sounds like um, being that type of person who is honest, telling the truth um, of what they see and how it is they actually are in integrity with themselves is something that um, everyone else can sort of um, fortify themselves around or, or, or sort of, um, you know, Mm -hmm. If 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 your circle of friends is a bunch of uh, idiots and bum, yeah, you know people who uh, aren't very trustworthy, you know uh, I don't feel safe in that environment as opposed to being around other friends that you totally trust. Uh, to be honest with you because they're honest with themselves as well, yeah. um, then that's you know. And I think this rule more than any other rule has to do with why young men are flocking to this because they've been BSing their way around how to meet women and align with men they feel is powerful mm. through BS and um, social meme clickbait orientations and polarization of 
uh, excitatory problems that are, are on the menu so that as men we can feel potent in the world. And I get the world has to change in some way where we're no longer in a medieval village where the masculine must be potent in the outer world to attack and fight and defend and all the, the stuff that was there and that women that would have a, a, a different role, you know, in some mighty of going back to the 50s. That's not, I don't think, going to happen. It's not that interesting. But I think we do have to recognize that men and women having the instinctual adaptation to socialization as if you're in a medieval village, pair bonding and future mating and fitting in are life and death for you and everyone you're related to. So you're going to be instinctually driven to probably make a lot of crap up so that you can feel like at least you're not adrift in the wash behind the boat that's sailing away from you with all the people who seem to have figured out what the hell's going on. Hmm. And that's not true at all, but it's a, it's a feeling. So people uh, exaggerate and amplify uh, how, how they see themselves in the world. Or, and I said this, I think, last time, but if not, I've uh, been doing a lot of talking publicly lately. It's, a, it's akin to people who put a tattoo on their face. And I, I love body art, so in no way am I having some 1950s not-so-white-guy <laughs> kind of complaint about uh, facial tattoos, but it's a very fundamental way of saying, I do not belong to the rest of this anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to now belong to anything that looks more like, get me out of here. And I don't think that's a bad adaptation at all. It's just noticing that we now have a, a society, a, you know, we're trying to learn how to be authentic members of a society. And our society right now is basically uh, bad news bears. And every team is in their own little, you know, section of the stadium with their hands, hands across their chest, moping at the fact that, well, we're not playing baseball anymore because everyone's mean. Mm. you know, or got a different idea about the world. And, you know, and this brings up the, the next rule. You know? The next rule, assume that the person you are listening to might know something you don't. Um, We're information addicts. Mm-hmm. We're an overly informed people. I, I, it's so fun in my office when people come in with a tablet. <clears throat> I just want to walk you through all the research I've been doing. And I'm like, um... Is there a Cole's notes, like what you've come up with? Because I've probably gone through that too. And they're, they're just like, I, I want you to know, you know, that this is what I know. This is, this is what I've learned. And I'm like, okay, cool. And I, I mean, honestly, sometimes people come in with nuggets. I actually have a couple of patients that are like better researchers than me. And they come back with something from the rabbit hole. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to have to look that up. That's an interesting idea. But I'd say 90% of the time people come in and their confirmation bias is that they know a lot already. You know where I've experienced this, um, this bit of a story here. I've met so many different um, new Canadians, uh, mm. Im- immigrants to this country, right. who in their own country are, um, you know, PhDs or doctors. Uh, a friend that I met in Vancouver years ago was, uh, I don't know, some kind of a big shot engineer on the oil rigs and all this sort of stuff uh, from uh, Iran. Wow. Iran, as he would say it. Of course. And uh, when he came here, uh, nobody gave him the time of day um, because his English was funny um, because, you know, oh, you're from Iran. Uh, what do you know? Right. Yep. And people would talk down to him. Meanwhile, back in the ranch, you know, in the space of like one and a half, two years, he ended, he ended up being the um, IT uh, manager uh, for a ESL school that he was attending. Um, and all of the other five branches <laughs> to the point where like in the space of two years immigrating to the country, he was like, oh yeah, I'm the dumb guy, eh? Yeah. Check this out. Yeah. And you can't hold people back, you know, when, and, and, when, and when they're, they're, 
and, and so <laughs> you know like i mean the, the idea is you know at face value uh, just talking to anybody on the street has their own life experience their own dictionary their own way that they say things the only way they, they talk things their own language um to assume that they don't know uh, as much as you do is kind of crazy um and then I, i'm going to take this maybe a step further and if i interrupt it i can sure not but um I don't know exactly what this is about. I've only seen one reference to it, but it was really badly done. So I didn't clearly understand what was going on, but it was some late night show where they had one of their correspondents in the streets during the big March kids were doing. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, comedians try to make light of everything. They're trying to make light of a lot of the new terminology kids use to refer to each other in the world. And I don't know what the words mean. I'm not going to try and, you know, mangle them, but... It's interesting that that's a symptom of the worst thing we could choose to do. Because communication is fundamentally about union, about a sharing, a coming together, and, and a transformation of hopefully both people who hear what is said. So if we're going to look at this rule, you know, when you're communicating with people, it would might be a good insight to actually listen to what they say and give some room for where that might clunk down through the, you know, the library of your mind and thoughts and beliefs. Uh, you know, just to engage in actually authentic communication, but then you have to listen to people. Mm -hmm. And now we're doing this, you know, what I would call social disorientation through polarized, um, you know, excitement or whatever. Here, here's just another example. I mean, you know, you, you talk to the far right people and they have their hand signs and their special words and their only way of seeing the problems. You talk to people who are maybe you know, in midlife, just trying to raise their kids and they have their words and their concerns. And you have people on the other side that want revolution now. And, um, you know, that, I mean, that's obviously what a lot of people are charged up about. Change needs to happen, but we're not looking at it as authentic members of a society. We're looking at it, at it as people in a, wit, a pitched battle. And now we have young people, you know, maybe in the meme of tattooing your face, coming up with a way of actually talking very, very clearly like teenagers can be screw all of you people. You have no idea what's going on here. It's meaningful to us and you're excluded hmm. in a way that's very powerful and very startling for parents, um, very disengaging, but empowering for the people using that, you know, uh, social bias of special words and different to, you know, thumb in the nose. Sorry, all you grown-ups or grups, if you've watched enough Star Trek episodes, us young peoples has taken over now and uh, screw all of you. And if that's what needs to happen, that's what's going to happen. But with respect to this rule, if you're actively going out of your way to stop communication from being effective and uh, engaged and authentic, you know, check number next on the reasons why you can no longer function as an authentic member of a society because now you're in the militia of the left or right. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. I, I'm, I'm quite enjoying your um, bigger perspective on how these ideas impact the world. And I see them. Wait, wait till we get to the fun bit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure this is going to be like silly long, but I think this is an important enough conversation to not edit it. Well, it's already too late to apologize for it being long. <laughs> kind, of, kind of figured. Kind of figured. Uh, rule number 10, uh, be precise in your speech. And that sounds like... Um, you know, the man of the hour, uh, Jordan Peterson to the nth degree. And that guy's a good communicator. Well, he's a communicator. That's his thing. He's and, just... you know, he, he, he knows that he's got an idea that's so big. Um, I'm going to need about, you know, 40 different words in order to describe this thing I just said. That's one of the most enjoyable things that I, I like about listening to him. 
Um, He's with, got a great vocabulary. And I mean, I don't know. Have you ever seen the one that he did uh, where he went through the archetypical mythos of Harry Potter? Um, I've seen clips of that. <laughs> I haven't seen the whole thing. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the way he talks about Pinocchio and this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he, he'll, um, he'll take an idea, he'll throw it in your face, and then he'll throw a dictionary and a half worth of words uh, around that to explain it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the precision at which he presents his ideas, for me, makes it very available for me to actually hear. Yeah, and again, I always wish I, I had like a little closed caption box for his most racy videos. And it could be somebody else, I don't think it... I've got lots to do, but somebody with like <laughs> hand, hand language just saying, and by the way, make sure you're watching for the actual thing he's doing. Cause he just threw a Frisbee out and he's used to having like nine or 10 hours over the next three weeks to argue this out with a whole bunch of people in third year clinical psychology. So right. you're not talking, you know, we all, we all have habits as communicators and I'm just, it's just kind of charming to watch this guy as earnest as he is, keep like puking on these, these <laughs> frisbees of like, I challenge you to like think this through and no one can because it's, it's, it's a one-sided talk. He's like giving a presentation and he's assuming that it's going to be like, oh, we're going to unpack this and rub it around and I'll walk away understanding, you know, what the Bible meant or something. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm, at some point I'm, I'm, I've been watching him, like you can just see his, his mouth kind of like twitching. Going, I can't say that. Don't say that. Um, I'm just going to keep it topical because right? he wants to go here's a frisbee here's here's the true meaning of you know human suffering and yeah. anyway so when you're looking at this idea of speaking clearly and um i don't have time to watch like lots and lots of his stuff but i did see one where it was actually him teaching uh, a psych class and uh he's a really interesting communicator which is you guys all suck at writing you can't even think you know, I've, I would never say that because where I'm from, you just never say something like that because it could be construed as an insult. But he's throwing frisbees around and he's been doing this a long time. So he's just like saying, the only way you people are going to become more effective at actually being articulate thinkers and communicators is to keep writing challenging essays. Hmm. So this is an aside. It's not a commercial, but it could be. Virtualessays.org. Dun, dun, dun. So... It's come up into my mind that people who are having a lot of difficulty with ideation, with racing thoughts, with competing thoughts, um, and I've used this myself at times where you sit down with a tape recorder or your phone and it's got a button on it that's going to record your voice until your batteries run out. My suggestion to anybody who's really jammed up upstairs for whatever reason is to sit down there and talk it out into the microphone as if you're trying to explain it to someone who's willing to listen to you reference the weirdness, you know, shout the opinions, you know, gore the oxes, do whatever you're going to do, and then come back a couple of days and listen to it and take notes. Hmm. So now you've got a rant that may have been coming from a triggered panic state or, you know, some, some other hypervigilant, you know, consequential experience. And you're just blathering away. I don't know, this is that person. I can't believe it's me. And you just record it, listen to it later, take your notes. And if you can, Record it again as if you're trying to very clearly in an order that would communicate to another person what went wrong, why it went wrong, how that's affected you, what it is that that really means in the nature of your life, and what you're going to begin doing about it with step one through, well, we're at 10, right, in the sense of follow those rules with respect to how you're kind of caught up. 
And I started doing that a long, long time ago, but I was doing it again for whatever reason a few nights ago, because I had all this writing to do and I picked some subject. And that's where I got this idea, especially um, if we can find a way to line up with some of Jordan's um, people who are doing his uh, past and future authoring program, or people who just want to write essays or make movies or whatever. Because I want to have um, something like YouTube that is just about people providing what you would qualify as not a technical essay necessarily, but something under the umbrella of an essay where you can go and do it, you know, it's virtual. It could be text, it could be a podcast, just sound, video, animation. If you're a musician, you could make it a musical. I, I don't think it matters. What I'm really inspired about is giving people permission to put their problems and their relationship to their problems and their attempts to stand up with their shoulders back and move ahead and clean up their mess. An audience of people who are cheering them on because they're all going through the same thing. And now we would have a forum that's inclusive and full of conflict. Hmm. Which would inspire, hopefully, a lot of intelligent conversation. We're, 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 that's where we're stuck. We, we, you cannot collaborate without conflict. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not possible. And that's where I think Jordan is terrified this is going. Because, I mean, his biggest piece when he was getting all peed off at the government was you're going to force me to use somebody else's idea of uh, an identity structure pronoun that isn't even um, something you're ever going to run into outside of that rare party in the basement of that rare uh, museum at this point in our collective experience as a culture. You know, and, and his biggest point, and the point I'm trying to make is, I think we have a couple of other things to, to work on first collaboratively. And then I think that will just fall into place based on the fact that you know people who like different pronouns and you'd be a jerk not to, you know, say what they would ask you to say. Mm -hmm. But of course, here we are like years before our society is probably in that state, you know, trying to be forced to use terms that have nothing to do with what we really need to be focusing on right now, in my opinion. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm just saying maybe, maybe another year, five later. Mm -hmm. That'd be cool. I'm not saying no, just saying not now. You're tuned into Fusion Health Radio episode 200, where we're discussing <laughs> <laughs> what we talked about in episode 50. <laughs> it's not that long. I haven't known any clocks over here. Uh, yeah. A um, couple more. Uh, rule 11, do not bother children when they are skateboarding. Yeah, so playing rough is one of the most important things children do, adolescents do, lovers do, uh, family members do in the sense of authority and dynamics. And by rough, I do not mean corporal punishment necessarily. But if you can't, you know, yell and, you know, overtly uh, express your profound need for things to not go in a certain direction, whether or not you can control that or not. You know, we've, we've lost a natural sense of safe volatility. Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, wow, this has really got you upset. So, okay, I'm going to stand on the other side of the counter and watch you wave your hands around and be, you know, very upset. And when you look at the kids playing rough with skateboards, which was his story that he played out, um, you don't build a kind of confidence when you're in a nanny state. Mm -hmm. with respect to your daycare or your school. I mean, I don't know what's going on in school now, but how many years of phys ed do we get? You know, how many years of uh, art or crafts or clay or wood or metal or cars or, you know, we don't get a chance to really like uh, overtly conf confront the world with, you know, although menial, still pretty useful skills to have in your hands. 
right? So again, this is just another retreat away from the conceptual medieval village of, of interaction in the world and your own sense of strength, power, and confidence and, and ability to negotiate. It's like, oh, well, we're not allowed to be overt. We're not allowed to play rough. We're not allowed to uh, find out what happens if you do dive in the creek off, off the rope that somebody got hurt on one year a long time ago. You know, every, the world is shrinking so much that, of course, we're compelled to stuff our face through screens. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, wasn't it recently they were in this, uh, I believe it was in Utah, they okayed the idea of free-range kids? Well, that was cool. And while in Australia, you're thinking about banning martial arts before you're 18. Yeah. Like uh, the idea of um, learning how to be in the world, in my mind, and in my experience, uh, was um, based on the idea of actually being in the world, actually, actually being outside until the lights came on. And then staying out a half an hour later and sort of saying you, you didn't, <laughs> and saying you didn't see them. Yeah. Oh, I was uh, I was looking the other way, Ma. I was up in the tree looking at the moon. Yeah, to be uh, out in the world and to um, uh, be living in it and playing in it and sort of roughhousing and doing all those sorts of things are what I learned to you know how my arms and legs and my head moved and and what are we used to in our impatient misogynistic. Um, arrogant generation that you and I grew up in. What did we call the kids who couldn't do anything like that? <laughs> I'm not going to say that. I'm, no, no one's <laughs> going to say anything anymore, right? I'm just saying um, our, our tribal pack orientation, you know, it, it doesn't have a, a clear set of rules. And that's why this is an important book because especially for young people, you are compelled to compete. <laughs> mm-hmm. And now competition is, is, I mean, it's not unallowed. It's just muted yeah, and safe. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, I like that one myself because it just sort of, um, you know, let, let a kid be a kid. Um, and See, uh, Kids play rough until someone cries because they're kids. If we stop that from happening, now they're pets. <laughs> right? Over, overly controlled pets with a lot of perfume. Yeah, we're, we're we're not animals anymore. We're I don't know what the heck we're doing, but it's weird. Hmm. Uh, we could certainly have a lot more conversation around that. Um, rule twelve. We're gonna, uh, the last in this long list, long short list. Pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. Yeah. So smell a rose. Pet a cat. Have a seat. Look around. And, and then there's two things to this because one obviously is you know if you've been through all the other eleven ones and you're really working your I don't know, you're um, working the system, as they say, or working the steps, as they say in AA, you know. Uh, if you're working it, you might as well enjoy the moments that you create for yourself that are beautiful and, and loving and, you know, sunrises and whatever else that the world uh, can do to reaffirm that it's not just, you know, machine language and bills to pay. Mm-hmm. There's a part of that that's not really communicated um because again, there's a difference between psychology and sort of state therapy and kind of where sort of acupuncture and shamans play. Um, if you're not very confident with being able to hold a space of deep, appreciative, you know, curious attention, because you're so used to having your eyes on a thing or another thing or another thing, or earbuds in your ears to get your eyes from one thing to another thing, your ability to adaptively be still have no agenda, not feel nervous and enjoy is determined by how often you put that practice into practice. Mm -hmm. 
And that practice of paying attention to things curiously, curiously turns out to be the fundamental opportunity to develop something we call discernment, which is essentially what it means to grow up. Mm -hmm. So if you're so hell bent and, and, you know, bedraggled running around trying to get all your stuff done and or save the world and anything else you want to do, question is, how, how can anyone trust your discernment when it looks to us like you're running around with your hair on fire? And not that because we're old, we know more, but at least we've had time to discern what discernment looks like. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is where the divide feels like a, a more insulting divide because I just said out loud, I question your discernment and maturity, not your opinion, not the direction society's going, just the impatience. Cause we have to go where we have to go. And I, like I said, I'm going to do a quick wrap up on how I think this whole thing can really you know, rearrange itself rapidly, although it may take more than two minutes. Or if we decide to, we could do another episode on, you know, healing a fractured society or something, but it isn't that complicated. It just asks us to notice how we got here and how we're lost. Hmm. Um, I think it would make sense for you to offer some kind of bigger perspective on what it is you see here. Mm -hmm. I mean, people tune into the podcast to hear your, your ideas. I mean, that's why I'm here. <laughs> okay, well, I'll run into it real quick. So we got the big bird, left wing, right wing. Okay. Right. On the right wing is the medieval village because those are the people who still think that the past orientation to collectivism and identity with your, say, your religion, your politics, your way of getting resources in the sense of being a hunter or something like that. I just have to be clear. I don't have a pony in the race of politics. I, I'm a relatively marginal person from where I come from. So I've just been watching the show since I got here. I vote, I participate, I do what I can, but I, I, I can't narrow my existence down to um, platitudes. Anyway, just just saying. So if people hear me talking, I, I don't have platitudes to, to flog. Hmm. But if I imagine this really big bird, and on one side of it is a relatively past orientated homestead village, you know, happy town where the police are still swinging billy clubs on a string, helping little old ladies across the street with their groceries and their cat, you know, or something. And then if we're to go over on the left wing, which obviously has a different point of view in the context of the village, it's a cosmopolitan city. Okay. Which is imagine 1960s Andy Warhol, you know, apartments in New York. And we're the collective creators of the next culture. No rules, hmm. right? Who, who cares what the consequences are? We're cosmopolitan people. And if it gets bad, well, we'll step back and shake it off and make it a meme for people to make fun of someday because that didn't work out. And off we go, literally making up things kind of in the dark, in the direction where we're spontaneously driven by the loudest people in the apartment because we're, we're cosmopolitan people. We're free of the past. And I, I mean, I can, I can, I have friends on both sort of camps, if you will. And again, I don't have an opinion about what we should do. I'm just as an observer of people going, whoa, look at the, the psychology of, you know, village socialization and the profound difference of the psychology of living in a cosmopolitan, uh, constantly fluidly making itself up reality. Hmm. Not about right or wrong. It's just, that's an interesting bird to be, you know, floating around on. And then it comes to the idea of collaboration. Because in my experience, no matter how polarized the situation is in, and I think I've been in a few life or death situations that the depolarization is what saved everybody. 
um, because we chose to collaborate. Now that word can mean a lot of things, so let's take it apart. Co-labor-ate or co-laboration. So literally it is the image of you and me or us and other people, regardless of any other context, cooperating to get something done. Now this is the hard part, and this is the hard, hard part I'm bouncing up and down. Collaboration has to include conflict. So how is it that the, if we can just say left and right for simplicity's sake, begin a debate? Well, usually by yelling at each other. Well, that's technically not a debate, but <clears throat> I mean, formalized. And that's why I like this idea of virtual essays, why I like what you know, Jordan Peterson's doing with take care of your own room before you walk into the world and start swinging your branded bat of ID, you know, ideology or whatever, because maybe we all need to slow down. Because mm -hmm. if we start swinging bats left and right on the wings, we're going to kill the bird. Mm -hmm. And it's not even about the bird or where it's going. It's about who's right, who's wrong. Right. So if we're going to collaborate and include conflict, here's the conflict we actually are going to have to embrace. Left wing, you're going to have to give up as much of the future as you're going to have to give up to bring the other side of the bird with you. It doesn't mean no. It doesn't mean never. It means, okay, what needs to happen next collaboratively between these two you know, disparate ways of solving problems. What do we each have to give up? You know, and uh, you talk to people and it's a lot harder for people on the right in the village because they're like, give up what? We've been doing this forever. This is our entire society. It's our people. It's the bedrock of the world. It's, it's you know, holy bread, if you think that's actually meant to be digested by humans or, <laughs> you know, it's all that enriching things where uh, the stability of those religious holidays or the stability of trusting your kid can go to school and be taken care of and fed and, and, you know, everything else. Like there's this whole clutching group of people and I can understand why they're clutching going, I can't let go of this. I don't want my kids to grow up in some metrosexual New York apartment where they just keep making stuff up and I'm going to be left the enemy. Hmm. Right. So there's, there's this withholding of even the possibility of conversation because the comparative conversation that's actually the conflict hasn't started, which is if you give up this and this, we'll give up that and that. And let's say for the next five years, we'll solve the problems that seem actually crucial. And then in five years, let's review whether or not, you know, gender pronouns or whether or not uh, universal basic income or whether or not, whether or not, because until we're collaborating, all of those experiments aren't going to be done very skillfully. People are going to be sketchy about it. People are going to rip it off. People are going to... Uh, you know, it'll be the black and white. I did not go on universal income, so I'm better than you, and I'm going to live in a garbage bin. And hmm. whatever people end up doing, it's still about polarization, isolation, and difference. So that's my message to the world. Collaboration is not easy. It requires conflict. And everybody on whatever side of the bird you're on, get ready to start negotiating with what you can give up for later. If you're on the left, we'll get there. I, I'm confident we're not a non-evolved species. We're just... You know, we just had a car accident. We should fix the car. And you know what, what traditions or uh, control structures or whatever uh, are people on the right going to have to allow to be maybe like the gun thing. I mean, as far as I can tell, the only thing that people are actually asking for in the States, and I don't know, I don't live there. It seems the only thing people are asking for is the same level of competence that the rest of the world suggests might be a good idea. Like, you know, taking a course, keeping things registered, maybe having insurance, you know. But if you're not willing to collaborate with society and be a person who has a lot of weapons, why would people want to trust you hmm. with weapons? I mean, we're just asking someone to like spend a weekend making sure you don't shoot your, yourself or your kids in the foot. 
you know, or, or whatever. So, I mean, this isn't, I'm not a politician, I'm not educated in, in any way about those bigger issues. I just watch it going like, this is like watching people spar, but never fight. Hmm. So, I mean, people may or may not know this. I'm a bit of a, I don't know, a martial arts guy, so I fight. It's just part of who I am. And when I watch an MMA bout that's five minutes, it's about 13 to 17 seconds on average where they actually attempt a new form of combat. And then the rest of the time they're just sort of poking around at each other, hopping up and down, you know, playing. Mm -hmm. And then that's a fun thing to do. It's a good way to stay fit. But if you're going to stand in the face of the world and say, I am here to fight to improve the status of all life through change, transformation, giving up whatever needs to happen and collaboration, and I'm prepared for the conflict, but I've refused to do unnecessary harm. That sounds like a good next step. Because mm -hmm. it's that or gong show. Hmm. And I've been watching the gong shows kind of, I don't know. There's some giggles there, but there's a way, way more groaning and, and you know, hand-wringing because this isn't complicated. Well, what needs to happen is obviously what needs to happen. Let's go. We could do this amazingly well. And that's what Jordan Peterson is trying to say. Figure out yourself. He could use his rules. You could use somebody else's rule. Don't pick a side on the bird. Start solving the problems that each of us needs to solve to make a better bird. Hmm. And then you're an authentic member of an actual living society. Interesting. You know, when we started the podcast, I was like, okay, where are we going to go with this? Talking about Jordan Peterson. I mean, um, understanding what I know of him uh, at a very cursory level. Certainly, you, you might have invested more time and energy uh, listening to his lectures and that sort of stuff. Um, but as you sum it up here, um, I'm left feeling kind of uh, not necessarily more in love with Jordan Peterson, but more in favor of the idea of uh, the latter half of the title uh, becoming a, an authentic. Um, uh, authentic member of society. Yeah, and uh, whether or not I've misread his whole spiel and that's not what he's up to, it really seems what he's up to. If you, if you really look at him, not not his clickbait politics, quick grab reaction stuff, but where, where his heart is when he's weeping in front of a room full of people saying how honored he was to, you know, help some guy and his kid figure out some problem in an airport on how his endless travels around the world. And he feels it because he's a really good clinical psychotherapist who got stuck in left-right politics and uh, I, I hope he doesn't get carried away with the easy bit. Hmm. That'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for uh, allowing me to run through all that. I'm sure it went over an hour and, and, and all that stuff. But um, <laughs> the number of people I'm talking to about this when I'm doing public speaking, it's like the number three thing that comes up. And my job is mostly about complicated autoimmune things. So if this is the third thing people want to know about is what are we going to do about the society? It's fracturing. I'm like, uh-huh. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So that's what I mean. Done. Done. Uh, Done. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to surprise you here. We've, we're over the two hour mark, oh. <laughs> but, uh, maybe it'll, it'll edit down to just, just shy of that. We'll see. <laughs> so you won't feel so overwhelmed. Well, maybe, maybe people who don't know who this, uh, Jordan Peterson is won't even listen to the show and go like, I don't know who this is. Well, I'm going to listen to it for two hours. Uh, well, but uh, uh, there's millions of people who know who he is. And I think, oh, we didn't put this at the beginning of the show. So maybe I'll throw up, um, some text on the screen. Because, no, Jordan Peterson is not going to be on the show. No quotes, no clips, no nothing. We should have said that at the beginning. So people who wanted to watch him aren't going to get pissed off at us. So Yeah, and I'll maybe even put something in the show notes as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, interesting dialogue today. Um, wonderful sort of uh, feeling being a, 
being a, an authentic member of society, leaving the, the, the show today. Hopefully that's inspired you, dear listener, to, um, I don't know, borrow one of Peterson's books from the library or buy your own version. Yeah, or just go and watch him teach psychologists, become aware of what psychologists learn by watching him teach them. Yeah, it's well, really inspiring. My uh, my invitation to uh, to read the book is probably to uh, keep you out of the uh, oh, yeah, right. information <laughs> that exists on the inter- internet about how he um, uh, rubs people the wrong way or rubs people the right way or whatever it is. Make up your own opinion. Oh, Anyways, par- pardon me, Anthony's right. Get the book. Get the book. <laughs> I'm a nerd. I, I, I like the professor part. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, episode 50, Understanding Jordan Peterson and Becoming an Authentic Member of Society. This is Fusion Health Radio. I'm Anthony Santa, and that is... Dr. Michael Smith. Uh, it's been a great conversation today, Michael. Thanks for showing up. You bet. See you next time. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.